This is The Future Of, where experts share their vision of the future and how their work is helping shape it for the better. I'm David Blaney. For decades, the world has seen rising globalisation with cross-border flows of trade, investment, data, ideas, technology and people. But now the trend appears to be reversing. A rise in popularity of far-right politics and nationalist leaders, the impact of Brexit on the European Union and pandemic-induced nationalism have all contributed to a sense of us versus them. To discuss this topic, with us today are Curtin researchers Donna Buterak and Ben Rich. Thank you very much for coming in today, Donna and Ben. Thank you. Pleasure to be here, David. Are we uh, are, are we retreating behind borders uh, more? And if so, how did we get here? Um, I think if we are, I think it's mixed. I, um, when I listen to your introduction, I think it's obviously, I would say it's probably more complex than that. But I think maybe because of decades of neoliberal globalisation, it we we are, and there's been different things that have caused us to want to more recently because of the pandemic. There's that sense of always needed to draw in um, and to cut our ties in a really physical sense in order to um, halt the pandemic. But I think globalisation and and not globalisation per se, but neoliberal globalisation has really um, caused a lot of changes in society, a lot of people to feel um, that they're against globalisation at all. Um, But I think it's the impact of that particular economic ideology that has has dominated globalisation for the past few decades. And I think one of the things it does is it shifts the concept of territoriality in in really important ways. Um, And that's probably because even though the processes might be happening within national territories, this doesn't always mean that they are national processes. So you see this disconnect between... um, um, the interests of the populace and the interests of big business. Um, and increasingly what we're seeing um, is that in many liberal democracies, the government has been seen to be more likely to represent and protect the interests of business. So we've seen in times of crisis that they'll bail out banks and large businesses, um, but, but at the same time impose austerity on ordinary citizens. So I think this disconnect contributes to um, broader feelings of disaffection with globalisation as a as a concept rather than just that it's neoliberal globalisation. So you see um, people wanting to move away from it may, maybe um, at, at the level of the general populace. Um, but I think it's it's not stopping. It goes on anyway because there are there's a as we can come back to this, but there is that disconnect between who does globalisation benefit and what processes are truly globalised. So we've got globalisation of capital, but we don't necessarily have globalisation of labour, you know, for example. Um, so, yeah, I think it's in globalisation that has maybe caused that disaffection um, and, and the key policies that um, underpin globalisation. So things like trade liberalisation and um, you know free trade agreements, deregulation of capital flow and privatisation of public assets, in, in that includes natural resources, But at the same time, elimination of social welfare programs and restrictions on immigration and the free flow of labour, those are the kind of things that have been happening and I think they haven't always suited a lot of people. Um, People, a lot of theorists would say um, and said at the time that something like Brexit was actually a vote against globalisation rather than anything else. And and similarly with the vote for Trump, he was able to mobilise feelings of disaffection with the economic system that affected ordinary Americans. Um, he mobilised that sentiment um, in order to get into power, I guess. 
Yeah, I sort of I come at this from in particular the study of extremist militant ideologies. I think there's a number of reasons why there seems to be a pushback now against uh, globalization. I would also echo Donna's um, sentiments. You know, looking at uh, you know liberalism and particularly the kind of promises that rung hollow out of neoliberalism. You know, neoliberalism kind of promised this global cosmopolitan identity that we would kind of transcend, you know, our national identities, our local identities, and kind of come together in the sort of good of humanity through our common humanity. In reality, what many people have found living under regimes of globalization, living under unstable labor conditions, living uh, being bombarded by constant other forms of identity is really a sense of alienation, a sense of loss of uh, place in the world, you know, hyper-individualization, which itself is very much a part of uh, the national, the sort of the advertising kind of approach that we see in modern uh, business, this idea that you are yourself very individual, you are very much on your own, and you need to define who you are. And a lot of people find that very, I kind of think, metaphysically confronting. Um, at the same time, you know, this idea that, you know, the, the sort of economic assumption that, you know, labor is infinitely mobile, labor can just pick up and go, you know, if their particular form of, um, you know, employment has become redundant, they can just retrain, they can just, you know, re-specialize. Well, it's very nice in the kind of, uh, you know, laboratory of, you know, economics. Um, but in reality, people again find that very disruptive to their lives. If you've trained your entire life, for instance, you know, to be, you know, a, a builder or something like that, and suddenly your job is gone, it's not just a case of, oh, I just need to invest a few more years of my life to become, you know, a, a programmer or something, you know, the old uh, sort of meme of learn to code. Um, it's that that becomes incredibly disruptive to me, to my family. Uh, you know, to my self-identity. Uh, so I think, you know, the, the very kind of cold economic assumptions at the heart of neoliberal ideology are very disconnected from the sort of squishy reality of what it is to be a human. And they are so heavily embedded in the ideology of neoliberalism that so you can't disaggregate them out. But when societies and individuals have been confronted with them and lived under regimes of these for decades, you know, we have an entire generation who's come up under that. Many of them find it incredibly dissatisfying, and to the extent that we even have movements who will violently reject it now. Do you think the pandemic has affected or strained the trust that we place in, in international organisations, like the World Health Organisation, for example? I th- mm. So I think when you when you say um, has it has it caused that kind of you know mistrust, I think maybe not from everyone. Is it because the US is making so much noise? Um, I think they're pretty much a standout case um, because we pay attention to everything they say in the West. But um, So I don't know that we could say that all that we all have mistrust of it. You know, I think maybe the WHO was slow, the World Health Organization was slow at declaring the pandemic. Maybe this is due to political pressure because there's the economic ramifications of that. There's funding that's tied to declaring a pandemic, you know, like emergency relief and so on. Um, and maybe that's, you know, maybe there's some some argument there about a loss of faith in global governing bodies. Um, but I think there is... There, yes, there is some general mistrust um, of governing bodies, but it's only the who. So, so we got 
you know, the United Nations, the IMF and the World Bank, but they're not all being singled out. Um, you know, someone like Trump is, is sowing discord um, with organizations like the World Health Organization, but they're not taking swipes at the IMF or the World Bank. So I think you have to think about which which global governing bodies are important to certain um, key players um, and how they and, – and, and anything Trump says right now actually is, is really just a way of um, capitalizing on feelings of disaffection um, amongst the populace because he's coming up for election again. So he wants to um, maybe use that in order for uh, people to vote for him. I would probably take um, uh, Donna's argument a bit further. I mean, I, I think actually, like the the sort of the collapse in the, the trust in uh, the WHO is really part of a broader trend that we've seen, you know, emerge in the last over a decade. The sort of collapse of uh, capacity and 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 commitment to international institutions that really I think crystallised with the election of Donald Trump, but had been emerging you know, ever since really the GSC in 2008. I mean, I think if we, we look in the last just even five years, there's been you know, a real collapse in the confidence of regional bodies like the EU, and we've seen the US itself really begin to kind of hollow out the international architecture you know, of international cooperation that spent the entire Cold War building, you know, the withdrawal from the JCPOA, the, the Iran nuclear deal, which itself was really seen by many as a kind of triumph of this kind of global cooperative um, activity. Uh, the withdrawal from the Paris Climate Accords, uh, the collapse of the, the TPP. Um, these are organizations and agreements that are were sort of that traditionally the US would be championing, that would be leading. But instead we're seeing a pullback from them, not just from the US, but from many other kind of nationalist governments. You know, if we look at uh, Duterte in the Philippines, we look at uh, Orban in Hungary, these are um, highly uh, internationally sceptical governments that are rising and in many ways being driven by populist sentiment. So, you know, I think there is a broader scepticism of the kind of manifestations of, you know, globalisation that we see in these same kind of institutions and norms. And why is it with that? all of them? Is it with all of them? Because, because are they taking flights at the World Bank or the IMF, or is it just the ones that, that countries, powerful countries like the US, no longer feel that they have complete control of? Which was the original idea was it going to be a European North American kind of consensus that 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 um, you know in setting up those kind of some of those original um, central organisations, global governance organisations. Um, do is it? Um, and this is a genuine question. Is it simply that it's the ones they know that they see other developed nations or developing and, and upcoming nations exerting more influence on, perhaps in things like the UN or the WHO? Um, because I don't see them wanting to dismantle the IMF or the World Bank, whose leaders they still choose and who who are made up of, you know, the, the finance ministers of the of the contributing countries. World Trade Organization is the is the trade ministers and so on. You know, it's it's a very narrow group, but is it? Could we still say that those are still controlled by the countries that are now agitating for um, the dismantling of other organisations? I'm, I guess I'm suggesting, or I'm asking, is it quite selective here, and is it about? Power? No, I, I don't actually think it is. I mean, I think you know, it doesn't necessarily mean that the US is explicitly out to dismantle all of these organisations. But for instance, you, you cite the WTO. There, the US has held up the election of the Pell judges in the WTO, which means that many of the core functions of the WTO have essentially ground to a halt 
So they certainly, you know, they haven't destroyed the institution entirely, but they're making it much more ineffective. You know, the U.S.'s role in NATO is another good example of this. The U.S. exerts overwhelming influence in NATO, um, yet it seems to be undermining that same international alliance. Um, and I think true. there's an understanding yeah. that the United States always has never had full control of these institutions. You know, you go back and you read about uh, you know, France's role in NATO during the 1960s, and that was always very problematic. But what the US understood this kind of array of international architecture to constitute was a means where which it could exert a significant amount of influence. That yes, it had to make sacrifices to support these various institutions, but at the same time, in the long run, it helped the US shape the gradual nature of the international system, which was demonstrated in '91 when it came out on top of the pile at the end of the Cold War. And we had that unipolar moment. That was sort of that the, the thing about paying off. But what the sort of election of Trump and, you know, these other populist leaders has kind of signaled is that the short term, you know, the very uh, transactional cost benefit sort of, uh, sort of um, view that, you know, in the short term, this isn't necessarily benefiting me right now has seemed to come to the fore and seems to be guiding again and again and again the policies of states like the US and other countries in how they approach these rather than approaching them as, well, this is a long-term investment for us. Mm. How does our geographical location influence our sense of identity? And has, has this changed over time? Interesting question. I actually think it shakes us quite a lot. And, and I think to the extent that we find connection with the physical land, it also helps construct our sense of belonging and um, and, and things like identity and belonging are, are not just tied to the physical world, they're, they're closely tied to the social world. Um, and so people within a particular nation state can form ideological and emotional connections um, to a place, but also to what is really only an imagined community. Um, this is something that was suggested back in the 1980s, and it's really by Benedict Anderson, political scientist, but it was it's really held, uh, I guess, People have found accord with that idea. Um, he was writing about nationalism and he described how people saw themselves as belonging to what were essentially imagined communities because they couldn't actually ever have meaningful interactions with all the people that they saw themselves as being connected to. Um, but they could still um, identify with a sense of belonging to a particular nation, a particular physical state or an idea of the nation state. Um, and and this gets you know constructed and reinforced through literary and media accounts and 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 then reinforced through socialization um even when the actual reality might be quite different and i think of a country like australia it's a modern multi-ethnic country um but there can be a vast difference between the official construction of the nation state as this singular entity that's based around a single official language in our case it's english um as opposed to the actual lived reality of what we have is multiple languages and multiple cultures all coexistent within the borders of the same physical nation state. Um, and so, I don't know, I think these connections, but even though they're, they're connections to something imagined, but are made through language and cultural identity, they're good ways of mobilising the construction of the nation state, but they're always subject to ideological positioning that inevitably creates insiders and outsiders. So by constructing the nation as this single physical entity that gets expressed through the use of one language, you actually kind of needlessly exclude and erase um, what are, you know, vast numbers of its citizens. Um, and this impacts people's sense of identity and belonging within that nation state. So um, 
I guess, a long answer, but I think, yes, there can be a connection to the physical land, but I think it's also very much tied up with the social world and the, the kind of um, forces that I'm describing there. I think when it, you know, when you, I, I think about the nation state um, and the idea of the nation state, um, I would say it is necessary because because people can come to think, well, is do we even need to have countries? You know, is there is there a necessity for that? But um, I think it is necessary, and it's not just that it's a repository of self and other or forms of identity construction, but in order to support the flourishing of society, you need the nation state because it has to manage elements of the social contract like the law and, you know, provision of financial and economic um, infrastructure, communications infrastructure, all of that. Um, but it also plays a role in providing emergency support and other services that the private sector wouldn't consider profitable. Um, so, um, and it, it's tremendously important, I think, in ensuring some kind of balancing in the distribution of income and wealth through mechanisms like progressive taxation systems or social services infrastructure. And and all of this kind of moves on, us on from, you know, if you go way back, sort of competing against each other um, or operating alone. How can we solve global problems if we have countries like the... Um well, as you mentioned, like the US, for example, perhaps placing less less stock in international organisations. Can we solve these international problems if we if we are becoming more inward looking, or if we're not um, part of global organisations? I, I think we can. I think we can do it less efficiently. I mean, we've been solving international problems ever since there was an international, and the efficiency is really the question. Yeah. And I think the reality is, is when we have a breakdown in institutions and we have a lack of trust in them, as we see with the WHO, the countries will, you know, go it alone or go it more alone and they will find their own particular approaches to things. And I think we've seen that um, in the case of uh, the response to corona. We've had this incredibly uh, decoupage kind of response out of various countries trying their own strategies, some of which have been more successful. You know, here at home in Australia, I think we've done probably one of the, if not the best jobs in containing it and balancing all the other things, you know, with a few other exceptions, such as like South Korea, New Zealand, but really we are at the top. Uh, but the reality is we have the failures of that kind of approach. You know, I would say the United States, you know, we have over a hundred thousand deaths there. We have social anarchy, we have all sorts of overflows, um, you know, pulled back from those international, um, you know, frameworks and sort of um, methods very quickly and decided to essentially go it alone and we see what happens there. I think as we move forward, you know, beyond this, and I think this is kind of the thing that keeps me up at night is when we see things like global warming, whether or not that's going to be sustainable, because I think global warming is going to be a, um, you know, a, a, a challenge internationally that is going to affect all of us, perhaps existentially. And if we continue to revert back to this kind of, you know, inward looking, go it alone approach, is that going to be able to fundamentally address the causes of global warming if we're just acting reflexively to it, if we're just weighing out? Uh, you know, our own individual approaches, you know, our own emissions trading schemes, et cetera. Or do we need to find some form of global governance? Now, whether or not that's possible is another question. We've had this 30 years to kind of come together and sort out global governance, and now we're seeing a reactionary pushback against it on a, uh, across the international system. Uh, but it's certainly, I, I think, you know, 
the more we can work together, you know, we are humans, we are collective action beings and, 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 you know, when we do work together, we solve things more effectively, the better chances we have. It doesn't mean that nation states, you know, as Donna points out very uh, correctly, that nation states aren't very powerful, capable, potent forces, but at some point that potency does trail off when you get these sort of worldwide spanning problems. Yeah, I think that's true, and I um, I agree that the for these these problems like the the problems with the environment, they know no borders, and so we have to have um, the the political will to to push for positive change at a global level. We can't withdraw into ourselves into our countries because we won't we won't be able to solve the problem. We, it requires some sort of um, action at global level <clears throat> and some sort of um, agreement and so on. And I think the um, I think that that I was thinking when you were talking, Ben. I was thinking of something, you know, that that thing about you mentioned about us all being our shared humanity, I guess, and 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 about where our sense of um, um, community or kinship sort of starts and ends. And I I, I think of the kind of comments that were made by um, the feminist scholar and philosopher Judith Butler, and she talked about the idea that. Um, we don't choose who we cohabit the earth with and until so we have to honour the, the obligations to preserve other people's lives. Like she talks about, you know, to preserve the lives of those we may not love and those we may never love or don't know and, and didn't choose because those um, obligations come from the social conditions of political life, not from any agreement we um, have made or from any deliberate choice. So she's she's kind of saying we don't have to know and love someone in order to want to support their flourishing. Um, we should do it because of our shared humanity and because there's no inherent privilege that flows from the accident of birth um, and, and inequalities that happen between people in one nation but also in across the nations of the world are the crystallization of historical and systemic global relations of power and they have little to do with the individual. So it's like we have to step outside the idea of choosing who to love, as it were, and we should be focusing on our shared humanity when it comes to solving very, you know, global-scale vexing problems like climate change, the impacts of climate change. Yeah, for sure. And I, I would sort of, I, I, it's a very, like, positive way to look at it. I mean, I think, unfortunately, the, the sort of, the, the, the darker side of collective identity and one of the things that the, you know, the international, like, sort of the idea of the global citizenship um, has, has always struggled with is this, you know, the negative, which is that identities and, you know, John Mearsheimer talks about this in his recent book on sort of liberal, the, the failure of liberal dreams, uh, that, you know, he says that the, one of the real powerful parts of nationalism is it just tells us what we aren't. So we define ourselves not just as, you know, through our common humanity, but through what we aren't, what other, what parts of humanity we don't share that with. And I think that's something that we continue to struggle with through this day because, you know, group identity at the core of it not only just tells us who we are, but tells us who we aren't. And that's a sort of a question that the neoliberal kind of approach and, you know, the idea of a global citizenship still hasn't failed to, has failed to really um, find an answer for. You know, if we had, you know, an alien invasion or potentially, you know, if we had a global threat that was very, um, uh, you know, experienced by everyone that might give us that external impetus that external pressure to kind of collectivize but again the thing i worry about is by the time we're feeling that is that going to be too late before something catastrophic happens 
Yeah, maybe, but I feel like climate change is that very thing that that you're talking about that could mobilise the realisation of our shared humanity. And I think the idea of the us versus them has so many contradictions in it because we can gather behind what, as I was saying before, it's really an imagined community that is the nation state. But while at the same time within that nation state, we're multi-ethnic, we're multicultural, we're multilingual. So we are the world in a sense. So we have these weird contradictions in how we how we define our sense of identity. And I think that gets really influenced by the way politicians and leaders um, mobilise certain sentiments. So you get so many Australian politicians saying, Australians are this or Australians are that. And I always think, who do you mean by that? Who's us? Who's us and them here? Because are you just thinking of one particular type of Australian who speaks your language or looks like you, or are you speaking about all? So there's these strange contradictions in how we establish identity based on borders or on sense of community and, and so on. One of the things that the pandemic has done is it has it really has demonstrated our, our economic interdependence, how much we rely upon each other to, well, to, to be able to function as economies and as communities. Are international supply chains perhaps more fragile than we realise? Uh, yeah, I, I would I would say yeah, it has kind of shown the um, the sort of the general international fragility. Now, this doesn't mean that we can't bounce back from it, bounce back from it relatively quickly, but we have to sort of remember that for the most part, particularly for the last three decades, we've experienced a you know a, a time of great uh, fecundity. It's, you know, like you know, it's been relatively stable internationally, and it's allowed these very inter- these complex interconnected. Um, supply chains between many, many countries um, to kind of flourish and, uh, and, and crystallize. And now that we're seeing these shocks, uh, this is being called into question. But I think, you know, we look at products that are out there today, the amount of different, um, you know, sourcings of materials, and we see that, you know, something like, for instance, um, you know, the F-35 fighter jet that Australia is um, currently taking on board, you know, it takes parts from at least 20 different countries. Um, now, that's great during a time of peace and stability, but during a times of uncertainty, um, you know, this is perhaps not as sustainable. And we're seeing you know, a number of these, particularly sort of right-wing authoritarian populist governments call for more uh, sort of forms of autarky, self-sufficiency, which ultimately costs more to everyone involved. You know, in basic economics, you go and you sort of look at it, it's, much better for you to focus on producing, you know, a few things that you're good at rather than trying to do everything at a more costly uh, method. These are questions and debates that are being had at home. Perhaps we are overextended. Perhaps it's not just a case of one or the other, but perhaps more degrees of self-sufficiency are are better than just being completely beholden to this. I think we will see in response to COVID uh, a growth of some degree of uh, some industries coming home. I think particularly uh, medical industries, you know, oftentimes you see um, historically when you have crises that the, the supply chains that are particularly pertinent to that will um, come home. You saw this, for instance, in the US after World War II with the defense industry. Um, but I don't necessarily think that, you know, we're going to see countries skew towards autarky entirely. I don't think we're going to see sort of a replication of, you know, what they do in North Korea with juice, which is, you know, try and do everything at home. But I think there will be some degree of belt tightening. It's progressively become easier to move capital and goods across borders. What about moving ourselves around and working across borders? 
Yeah, that's always been one of the contradictions, I think, under neoliberal forms of globalisation, that capital's been allowed to... They, they really, you know, haven't been separate countries for capital for some time. It's been allowed to flow freely and without concern for geographical and political borders. Um, it's just ordinary people who've continued to be contained by nation-state borders and, and quite aggressively as time's gone on. Um, but I'd, it, it's hard to imagine it changing, um, even though if we look back in the past, there there have been times when we've had free movement of labour. Um, some theorists have argued for some time that we should be allowed to return to that and allow um, things like market supply or, or supply and demand for labour um, determine where people go and, and um, sort of more organically control the, the global labour market in that way. Um, people move to where the work is and then move away when the work dried up. This was the case for many years in, in, with Things like the Mexico-US border um, it was a very porous border for so many generations. There's a real history of Mexican people travelling into the US to take up really important jobs in agriculture and industry and keep those industries going, um, and then going back to Mexico when there was no work. And so we see problems with the tight border because you know they've put that in place. All it does is create social problems because workers could not any longer move back and forth easily, um, and their families in Mexico and their their lives in Mexico and their sense of belonging there. Um, now they have to either permanently be separated or risk all sorts of hardships by trying to bring their families and so on, and even bring themselves risk all sorts of hardships. Um, and it's also created economic and logistical problems because um, in the US because they now have to police the border. Um, so there's all sorts of problems with with stopping it, but there is this real. Um, people talk about um, um, globalization as a as as um, um, there's a, there's mobility regimes within globalization. I think some theorists talk about uh, in the way that people are controlled quite tightly. Big business is allowed to go. Some professional class people have more ease of movement. You know they can actually participate in those flows, but for most workers there's these really tight um, border controls. But it has been theorised that we should, as I say, loosen it up. Um, I don't know whether it would work or not, but um, it would. what the theorists argue is that um, allowing, um, that they say that, that labour is handicapped by being a prisoner of territory, and so allowing labour to move would, would be truly globalising, you know, that, that other forms of, of economic activity are globalising, but not labour, not the movement of labour. So, um, yeah, it's an interesting question. I, I, I'm not sure how it would work, but it, but we do have examples from history, I guess is what I'm saying. Italians also, you know, generations ago moved back and forth between the US. They're encouraged to from Italy because they thought, you know, it would lead to insurrection if they stayed around with no jobs. So, um, yeah. Yeah, I, I think you know, it's, a, it's a very um, multifaceted sort of, Problem, challenge, however you want to construe it. I mean, I think you, you know, you you look at the role of the nation state in relation to its own citizens. You know, there's a big question here. I mean, I remember a long time ago, my um, my my old supervisor uh, posed a question to me. You know, how comfortable would you feel having to compete directly with you know graduates of Yale for academic jobs here at home in Australia? Um, which we do to some extent, but there also is some degree of protections that the state, you know, in some ways seeks to um, uh, sort of give more um, purchase to its own citizens than, say, people from outside. So there's a question of the responsibility of the state there. There's also the the question of the, the social impact of having large demographics of people move around. You know, the, the sort of the neoliberal worldview is that we should all be very comfortable with each other socially, 
um, culturally, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But we've seen again and again and again when you see large demographics of people from external to a particular geographical space move into that space, it does cause all sorts of consternation, not necessarily because those demographics are going in and causing any particular problems, but because they are going in and being different to the local people there. I think if you look at, for instance, one of the things that really drove the Brexit party was this sense of a lot of loss of, quotes, Britishness, whatever that may be, and the kind of subsequent reactionary pushback of people seeking to you know, get rid of the, the kind of free flow of labour uh, and peoples that came with that into Britain by rehardening those borders. This isn't saying it's a good or a bad thing wholly, but that it is a reaction to these kinds of forces and that perceived loss of identity, that perceived loss of culture as you get more and more groups of people pushed up against each other. Um, it also depends on the economic conditions. You know, studies have shown uh, historically that during times of economic success, um, and political stability, multicultural societies are very, very successful. You know, they bring together all sorts of different ideas um, and, 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 and peoples and, and perspectives and, you know, into a small space and get all sorts of new kind of things getting coming out of that. But at the same time, when there are points of uh, economic downturn, political instability, those same division lines become often points of um, conflagration and conflict between people. There's a kind of um, schizophrenia there that, you know, in certain conditions it can be very good and in certain conditions it can be very bad. I think that gets cynically mobilised by um, political leaders as well, as we saw with Brexit, the, the kind of racism gets whipped up, not because of, for political gain um, on the part of people who are trying to mobilise those feelings, those ideas within the populace. Absolutely. Donna, is the ability to communicate in the same language a prerequisite for the global citizens of tomorrow? I would say no, because I, I, it brings to the fore the idea of a single language has so many problematic um, ideological underpinnings, I guess, because if we think about what language is, it's not just a way of communicating. It's also a way of expressing culture. Languages are located in culture and people learn languages in social cultural settings. They learn it through through that kind of early socialization to a culture, not just to a language. So you can't disconnect language from culture. They are... Um, they're completely interwoven. So if you talk about, um, in a sense, imposing or making people all speak one language, you're also eliminating cultures in doing that. And and we've seen that quite a lot. We've seen that with the colonial project, and and um, even more recently with with globalisation and the way that the English language has come to the fore and is now has it's considered a hyper central language. Um, it has so much um, influence globally and so many people have been encouraged or forced or wanted to learn English because of gaining, being able to gain access to certain job markets and so on, but in learning that pushed out other languages and we don't just lose languages when we lose, we lose cultures as well and I think you've probably touched on this in, in previous podcasts when you spoke to Alan Dench about linguistic imperialism. Um, but so yeah, I would say no. I think the focus should be, and I and I feel like that idea that there should be one language is probably coming more from people who only speak one language, and maybe that's English. So maybe that's a very um, 
developed world, English world kind of sentiment um, because I think maybe the focus should be that we should be embracing more language and that being able to speak more than one language should be the, the, the idea, not that it should be one language. Because whenever I hear one language, I think, oh, do you mean English, don't you? you know? So I think there's, it's a very problematic idea. And it also, you know, there's, you could look at it pragmatically and say, well, then everyone would understand each other and it would be really great. But I think it's sweeping under the carpet a whole lot of history and culture and, and individuality and difference and, um, and so on that, that goes along with language. You can't separate all of those things from language. Well, I think we'll I think we'll leave it there. Thank you very much, Donna and Ben, for coming in and for sharing in your phoning My in pleasure. and for sharing your knowledge on this topic. Thank My you pleasure. very much. Thanks. You've been listening to the Future of a podcast powered by Curtin University. If you have any questions about anything that we've raised today, you can get in touch by following the links in the show notes. Bye for now. Mm-hmm.